So last week, Pastor Mike started off on a new sermon series that we're calling Endgame, What We Know About What Is to Come. And in this series, Mike and I hope to explain a lot of what the Bible has to say about what's going to happen at the end of the world. Um, And our intention is to limit ourselves to what the Bible clearly teaches, right? That means that we're going to focus on the things that most Christians have agreed on over the centuries. Um, And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on the things that are a little less clear in the Bible and are therefore have been debated by people over the centuries and are still debated today. But there are some very important truths that the Bible is clear about. And, and, and by talking about those things, we hope that we will all gain the benefits that God intended for us from a knowledge of these future uh, events and of, and of His plan for the future. So our topic for this week is Jesus' return. Right? And I've titled this sermon, The Return of the King, which, um, you know, obviously that comes from uh, Tolkien, right, and, uh, and his Lord of the Rings series. And, and I hesitated a little bit to call it The Return of the King because, of course, Tolkien stories are fantasies, right? And I didn't want to kind of subtly imply to anyone that the stories of Jesus are also fantasies. Um, and, but, but, but here's the thing, uh, Aragorn... Son of Arathorn, the heir of Elendil, he's not a real person, right? But Jesus is. And, and I want to make that very clear here. And, and Aragorn's return to Gondor to save his people from evil was a made-up story. But, but, but Tolkien, who was a, a Christian himself, was at least partly inspired to write that story by the story of Jesus, who is the real king, who really will return and fight evil on our behalf and save us in our time of need. So anyway, let's, uh, let's look at some of the things that the Bible has to say about the return of King Jesus. So we're going to start out with kind of a big picture idea of what we're talking about here. And, and the, the big picture is, so Jesus was the Messiah, right? And uh, Messiah is a Hebrew word. It means that he was the anointed one, right? And Christ, that other word that we see a lot in the Bible, that's just the Greek equivalent of the same word, Messiah from Hebrew, Christ in Greek. They both mean anointed one. So Jesus, the anointed one. Um, And that word could be used to talk about other people who had been anointed, especially they used it to talk about the kings of God's people who were in their uh, inauguration as kings, they would be anointed with oil as, as a symbol of their, uh, their coming into the, the leadership of God's people. But um, the word came over the time to have a special meaning, especially in the prophets, where they talked about one particular Messiah, one particular anointed one, who was going to come and be sent by God to save his people from their sins. So an example of that kind of prophecy is uh, from Isaiah chapter 7, where it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And out of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. 
And he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So for many hundreds of years, God's people looked forward to the coming of this Messiah who would come and do all these things. And God waited quite a long time before he sent the Messiah. But the Bible tells us that God did send the Messiah according to his plan that he had set out ahead of time. So in the book of Galatians, it says, but when the, time, uh, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. So the Messiah came when the time was just right. It says that the set time had fully come. And so why didn't he come a decade sooner or a decade later? Or why didn't he come 500 years earlier or 1,000 years earlier or several thousand years earlier? Um, You see, God's people fell into sin in the Garden of Eden and had been needing someone to come and save them ever since. So why did God wait all these thousands of years before sending Jesus? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But it does say that when the set time had fully come, God sent his son. So God had set a time for the coming of Jesus. And why did he choose that specific time? Uh, Why did he wait so long? We don't really know. But we do know that God had a plan. God had a plan, and he sent prophets to tell us uh, some things about that plan so that we could look forward to the outworking of his plan. And then God executed that plan. So Jesus was born on Christmas. He lived a perfect life completely without sin of any kind. He did everything exactly according to the will of his Father. And he taught people about God, and and he taught people about love and righteousness. And he did miraculous signs to prove that he was who he said he was. And then he died on the cross to pay for our sins. Then he was buried in the tomb and was dead for three days. But after three days, he rose from the grave, proving by conquering death, that God had accepted his payment for sins. And now, anyone who puts their faith in Jesus and in his payment for their sins can be forgiven of all wrongdoing. Anyone can find redemption, hope, love, and many other good things when they come to Jesus for salvation. But but back to the story. So Jesus rose from the dead. Then what did he do? Um, Like immediately after he rose from the dead, what happened? Did he just go back to his regular life as if nothing happened? No, that's not what he did. Uh, Because, see, he was changed by his resurrection. He was not the same kind of human that he had been before. He was in a new resurrection body that was an eternal body. And his life was not the same as it was before. So 
Um, there's a few places in the Bible that talk about what Jesus did after he rose from the dead. And one of the places where it tells us some of that story is in the very first part of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. So you can open there with me. We're going to spend a few minutes now in uh, Acts chapter 1. And uh, I'm going to start reading with verse 1 of Acts chapter 1. It says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So that uh, introduction to the book there is he's talking about his former book. And we know that that was the gospel that we call the Gospel of Luke was the first book. And then this is the second book. It's kind of a two-part series. Uh, the first one told the story from Jesus' birth up until uh, he, as it says here, until he was taken up into heaven. And then the second book tells the story from when he was taken up into heaven until Paul's in Rome later at the end of it. So it tells the story of what the apostles did. So it's the Acts of the Apostles. Um, but uh, but he's, so he's giving this, uh, this introduction and talking about uh, Jesus being taken up into heaven, he mentions there, as the end of the Gospel of Luke. And it's also the beginning of the book of Acts. It, they overlap a little bit in that one story of Jesus going up into heaven. So um, here's, what, here's the way it tells it here. Um, verse 3. After his suffering, that is, his, his death and his resurrection, after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So it says that he appeared to them over a period of 40 days. Now, we only have a couple of stories of um, Jesus appearing to people over that 40-day period, but it seems like what would happen is he would show up kind of suddenly, he would spend some time with them, and then he would be gone again uh, at, at the end of a, a period of time. Um, so it does say here, on one occasion while he was eating with them, and that's pretty interesting. It, it makes it sound like there were probably several occasions where he ate with them, and, um, and this was one particular time while he was eating with his followers. So when we're talking about Jesus appearing to people, we shouldn't imagine that it was you know, kind of a thing where somebody would say, oh, did you see that? I think that was Jesus. Did you see that? And the other guy says, what? Where? Where did you see him? Oh, was it really Jesus? No, that's, that's not what it was at all. Jesus would come and appear to them, and he would, like, talk with them and sit and eat a meal with them and, and spend time with them. Um, don't know exactly how long it was, but it sounds like hours he would be there. Um, so anyway, uh, after his resurrection, that's the way that he was appearing to him. So on this one particular time, while he's having a meal with his followers, it says in verse 6, Then they gathered around him... And asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. So here they are. Jesus has just talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and, and then uh, they asked him about restoring the kingdom to Israel. That is, 
They wanted to know if this was when he was going to fulfill the rest of the prophecies about the Messiah. They knew that he was the Messiah. I mean, he had just risen from the dead and everything that was pretty obvious that he was really the Messiah. But he hadn't done all the things that had been prophesied yet, like, you know, reigning on David's throne forever and establishing justice and righteousness and all these things. And so they thought, are you going to do it now? Is this the time? But Jesus doesn't answer their question. He just says, it's not for you to know the times and the dates that the Father has set. Well, that means that God has set times and dates, right? God has set those times and dates, uh, just like He did with the first coming of Jesus, right? Uh, God has a plan that includes particular times and dates when He's going to do things, but just like He didn't tell people exactly when Jesus was going to come the first time, um, he only gave prophecies so that his people could look forward to it. Again, he's done something similar. We know that Jesus will come back, and God knows when he's going to come back. But God's plan does not include telling us when it's going to happen. And it is not for us to know the times and dates that the Father has set. So instead of answering their question, he just says, not going to tell you that. Instead, he goes back to what he was talking about before they asked the question, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he says uh, in Acts 1.8, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So instead of talking about that, he talks about this is your mission. This is what I want you to be doing um, next, we often call this the Great Commission, and it's, Jesus talks about it in several different contexts uh, after his resurrection. He tells his disciples what he wants them to do. Sometimes he says, go out and make disciples. Sometimes he says, preach the gospel into all nations. And here he says, go and be witnesses all over the world. They're all different ways of saying the same thing. Go out and tell people about Jesus. Uh, help other people to put their faith in him and become Christians. And that is the final instruction that he gave to his followers. Verse 9, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So Jesus goes up into, into the cloud. And the cloud here is almost certainly not a normal cloud of water vapor. Uh, in many places in the Bible, a cloud is a, a visible symbol of the presence of God. We saw that when God descended on Mount Sinai, there was a great cloud that covered the top of the mountain. Also, when they built the tabernacle, the cloud of God's presence came and entered the tabernacle. And then again later, when they built the temple uh, in Jerusalem, the, God, the cloud of God's presence came and uh, filled the temple of God. And, and so that cloud that Jesus ascends into here is almost certainly the cloud of God's presence. So Jesus didn't just fly up into the sky... He went into heaven, into the presence of God. And that is where he is now. 
Um, of course, there's a sense that Jesus as God is everywhere, right? He's omnipresent, which means that he is uh, present in all places all at the same time. But on the other hand, he also has a physical resurrected body that is in heaven with God now because he is still fully human and fully God, just like he was when he was on earth. And being fully human means that he has a human body, um, just uh, even though it's a little bit of a different body than we have because it's already been resurrected, but it's the same kind of body that we will all have in eternity. So, of course, Jesus' followers are amazed to see him go up into the cloud, and they stand there and they're staring up into the cloud, which seems pretty like a normal thing to do to me, but the angels seem to feel like they... <laughs> That's uh, kind of a waste of time. Why are you looking up into the sky? Well, obviously, because he just flew up into a cloud. But, but anyway, they, they say, um, why are you still... Stop staring at the sky. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. So see, that means that when he comes back, it will be in his physical body as a human, just like the way that he left. Um, so Jesus will come back in that same eternal, physical, resurrected body that he left with. And, and his return will not be like his first coming when he was born as a baby and lived a normal childhood and all that kind of thing. Um, when he returns, he's going to come back out of the cloud of God's presence and return to earth just as he left. And, of course, he talked about this before, um, before he died. He told his disciples that this is what was going to happen. Uh, one of the uh, well-known verses on that is from the Gospel of John, where uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples just, just a few days, or this, the day before he died. And he says this, he says, My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So here Jesus is saying that, that uh, after he returns, things are going to be different. Right? He's, not, he's not just going to come back and life is going to go on uh, as it has been before. Jesus is going to take his people to be with him. And as we saw in Pastor Mike's message last week... Um, he talked about Jesus' return triggering the end of this age uh, and this, this period of overlapping ages and the beginning of the age to come. If you missed that message, you want to go back and listen to that and hear about the, the, uh, the, this current age and the age to come and how they overlap during this last days. But anyway, Jesus' return is the triggering event that will cause the beginning of the age to come. And there's a number of other events that are also going to take place at the same time when Jesus returns. The exact sequence of events and maybe some delays between events and, and some of that kind of stuff, that's some of those unclear, more debated issues that we're probably not going to, to settle uh, today. But, um, but it is clear that when Jesus returns, some things are going to happen, right? And Jesus told us about that um, in uh, Matthew chapter 25. So we're going to spend a little bit of time in Matthew chapter 25 now, so you might want to turn over there. Um, and here Jesus is uh, doing some teaching, 
um, again, shortly before his death. And here's what he says. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Now, when Jesus talks about the Son of Man, that's his normal way of speaking about himself. Um, yeah, it's a little bit odd that he talks about himself in the third person like this, but it's, it's clear in the Bible that that is what he's doing. When he talks about the Son of Man, he's talking about himself. So, so he's saying here really is, when I return in my glory and all of the angels with me, I will sit on my glorious throne. Now, that's another big difference between uh, Jesus coming at Christmas and the second coming, right? Uh, he came at Christmas alone as a little helpless baby, but he will come back with an angelic host accompanying him, and he will return in his glory. Now, exactly what that means, that he will be in his glory, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what it is, but it will certainly be a contrast with the humble arrival at Christmas. Jesus will come back openly displaying his glory as God. He goes on in, in Matthew 25 and he says, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So it doesn't, he doesn't give a lot of detail here, uh, but he simply says all the nations will be gathered. But we know from the rest of the Bible that he's not just talking about the people who are alive at that moment. In fact, all the people from all the nations who have ever lived are all going to be resurrected and come and stand before Jesus' throne to be judged at this time. Um, next week, uh, our message, whole thing is going to be about resurrection and about the rapture and all that, so we're not going to say a whole lot about the resurrection right now. And also, we're not going to say too much about the judgment right now, because we got another week coming up about uh, that's going to be a whole week on the judgment. But we are going to say a little bit about this passage right here um, as one of the key events of Jesus' return. So Jesus is teaching here that when he returns in his glory, he is going to judge all people. And they will all be put into two categories. Right? So as he judges, it's not going to be some kind of a, a, a graded scale where he's going to line everybody up from the very worst person to the very best person, and you're all going to have your, your rank along. That's not the way it's going to be. It's also not going to be like um, 10 categories from the evil tyrants down on this end to the saints on this end, and then all the people kind of in between in all their various categories of, of goodness and badness. No, he has two categories. Just two categories, two divisions, the sheep and the goats. Now, I'm just going to read a section here of this judgment without saying too much about it. Um, you can follow along in your Bibles. It's, it's Matthew chapter 25. And um, yeah, I'm just going to start reading from verse uh, 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, 
and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and then go and visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he tells a similar story to the people on the other side, except he says, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. And they also say, when did we see you? And he says, whatever you did not do for the least of these, you did not do for me. And then at the conclusion at the end, verse 46, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now, this is a, a story that Jesus told of the judgment in order to make a particular point. It's not a complete picture of, of uh, the judgment. We're going to save that for another, another message. Uh, but, but this is an important part of the picture of the judgment. Here, Jesus tells us that the primary difference between his people and those that are not his people is how they treat people in need. The righteous have been generous toward the least of these, and the unrighteous have not. Now, we know that our salvation is based on our faith in Jesus, not on our works of righteousness. But the Bible doesn't separate those the way that we sometimes want to do. In fact, uh, there's a section of the Bible that specifically argues against this idea of separating faith from our actions. It's in the book of James where he says this. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So, and then here in the description of Jesus' judgment, we see how this principle will work out. That is, those who only claim to have faith will be judged by Jesus as goats, while those who have a true living faith that motivates them to have compassion toward the needy, will be judged as sheep. So that's the judgment that is going to take place when Jesus returns. The next passage I want to look at about Jesus' return is from the book of, uh, of Thessalonians. This is Paul's letter to one of the churches, one of the very first uh, parts of the Bible, or of the New Testament that was written. And this church was very worried about things relating to the return of Jesus. Um, some of them thought that Jesus had already returned and they'd missed it. And some of them thought that it only, the only people who would actually benefit from Jesus' return are people who were still alive when Jesus came back. So if you died, then you weren't going to get to participate in Jesus' kingdom. So Paul writes a letter to clarify some things. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting here in verse 16, he says, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, 
and with the trumpet of call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So here we see that when Jesus returns in glory, it's going to be announced by uh, what is described here as a loud command, the voice of the archangel, and a trumpet call of God. Now, I'm not sure exactly how that's going to work, if there's really going to be an angel up there shouting, or, or how we're all going to hear this uh, voice of the archangel, or if there's actually going to be a physical trumpet that somebody's going to blow. I'm not sure exactly how that's going to work. But the point is that this voice of command is going to be heard over all the earth. And so these Christians um, uh, are being reassured here that they, they have not and cannot miss the return of Christ. It will be something that cannot be missed. And he also says here that, um, that those who have died, rather than missing out on Jesus' return, are actually going to experience it first. The dead in Christ will rise first. And then the next verse he says, After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So see, after those who have died have, met, uh, have gone up to meet Jesus, then those Christians who are still alive and living on on planet earth, will also go up to meet Jesus. And together, all of God's people will move into eternity with Him together. All God's people of all ages, both those who have died and those who are alive when Jesus comes back, will be taken to live with Him forever. So therefore, Paul says, encourage one another with these words. You see, this truth that our future will be with God for eternity should be a great source of encouragement to us. Because even when things go badly in this life, um, Jesus is coming back to take us to be with Him. Even if we die, Jesus is coming back to take us to be with Him. Um, and, and, and we will enjoy His eternal rule of love and righteousness and joy. So be encouraged. Now, earlier uh, in this message, I talked about the timing of Jesus' first coming. And we saw that in the Bible, God had a plan and that Jesus was born at the exact moment when God had planned. But people didn't know when that was going to be. And we talked about how that's the same now. We, we still don't know uh, when it's going to happen. God has a plan, but he has chosen, and he has chosen a time when Jesus is going to return, but we don't know when that is. And it's been a long time since he promised that he was going to come back. It's been more than 2,000 years. Um, and after all this time, it, it, it would, it, it's kind of easy to lose faith in that promise. Maybe Jesus isn't really coming back. Maybe the world is just going to go on and on until the sun burns out. 2,000 years, uh, it's somewhat understandable that some people would start to question that particular teaching of Christianity and say, is, it, is Jesus really going to come back? But the Bible tells us that doubts about this brought on by this delay in Jesus' return actually started 
just a few decades after Jesus left. Here's in, in the book of 1 Peter, um, we have some teaching about that. Peter says, uh, sorry, 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3, in verse 3, he says, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires, and they will say, Where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word that present heavens uh, and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So Peter reminds us here that uh, things have not gone on just the same ever since forever. The earth had a beginning. Everything had a beginning. God created all that we have now. And he refers to here to the, the time of Noah when God brought a huge judgment and, uh, and, and destroyed um, the created earth with a flood. And that he has promised to do something similar again. Um, there will be another cataclysmic judgment when the entire creation, not just the earth this time, but the heavens and the earth are going to be uh, destroyed in judgment. But the question, though, then is why is God delaying so long? If that's what his plan is, um, then what's taking so long? And so Peter answers that question, verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, time is different for God. That's the point of the days and a thousand years. Peter is just saying, look, it's, God doesn't experience it the way that we do. For Him, waiting a thousand years is not that big of a deal. For Him, waiting you know, hundreds of years... He doesn't think that's a long time. God just doesn't uh, see time the way that we do. Um, for him, 2,000 years isn't that long. But why is he delaying? He says here, he says, uh, because he wants more people to come to repentance and to be with him in eternity. So think about it. What if he had come 100 years ago? None of us would have even existed. But God wanted you to be with Him in eternity. And so He waited for you to come along so that He could present His gospel to you and you could be saved and come to repentance and, and, and be a part of His people for all eternity. And there are more people alive today that He wants to save. He wants people to come to repentance. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. To say it's going to come like a thief is just a a dramatic way of saying it's going to come unexpectedly. You're not going to know. But here's the thing. There is a deadline for salvation. We don't know when it is. The Bible says it's going to come like a thief. It's going to be a surprise. It could come today. It could come tomorrow. We just don't know. And when it comes, after that, it will be too late. Verse 12. Sorry, verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Now, there's a, there's a question for you, right? Since this is what's going to happen, this is the future, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. So Peter here at the end gives, gives two concluding uh, exhortations from these truths that he's been talking about. First, he says, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. And then he says, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. In other words, be ready for Jesus to come back. Don't let him come back and find you saying, oh, I meant to do better next year. I meant to do better next time. I meant to accomplish something in the future. Don't be ashamed of the life that you've lived. Fight against the sin in your life. Seek to do good work, and you will be ready for Christ's return. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for making this great plan of salvation and for for waiting for just the right time, waiting for each one of us to come along so that we can be with you in eternity. And I pray that you would help us to live lives that are ready for your son to come back and that we would look forward to that day with joy and that we would experience it with joy. I pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.